Welcome to a slice of orange. I'm Jody Balma. So the election is over. What happened? Uh, we're going to talk about that. And I'm sitting down today with uh, Jody Aegis Vallejo, who you may remember from my podcast uh, episode about public education. We had so much fun talking uh, that we're going to cover the election returns and. It's going to be outdated as soon as it publishes because we're recording this Friday morning and at 5 p.m. the numbers are going to change. But a lot of the trends are starting to set. Some of the races are already decided. Some of them might not be for weeks. So we'll tell you what we know uh, and give you the links to update you, you, yourself as these come. So after today, we'll wait until Monday for 5 p.m. regular updates. Uh, and, and we'll see the Secretary of State's website and the Orange County Register of Voters website update those numbers as all of those ballots are counted. So let's get started. It's a long one. You can break it up if you want, but just so much to cover and we're going to have a really great time. So let's get started. So today we're talking election results, or at least what we know. We're recording on Friday the 11th. Happy Veterans Day. Uh, and I am here with Jody Aegis a- uh, Vallejo, and we are going to talk about election results. Welcome. Yes, and I'm so excited to be here. I kind of um, invited myself into this I love episode it. today with you, Jody, because you've taught me so much this election, election season. and. I'm just so grateful for your expertise and how you bring that expertise and translate it for the public, for all of us, and really have educated, you've just educated so many of us in this city. And, you know, you really are our foremost expert in in local, state, and national politics. And I'm so appreciative of you and this podcast. Well, thank you. Definitely not a foremost expert on national. I leave that to everybody else. But I had so much fun talking to you about uh, education policy, and uh, so many people uh, really appreciated that podcast. So I'm excited to have you back. I'm excited to talk about what we know and what we don't know. So um, we're going to do this with you asking me questions and having a conversation about the election. Yeah, we're turning the tables a little bit. Yeah. So I have this question that I've been really thinking about and wanting to ask you in the aftermath of the midterms. You know, going into these midterms, so many different groups, the media, Republicans, even polling were really all fervently suggesting that we would experience, you know, a red wave, a national red wave at every yeah. level of government. And it's that's also the kind of the typical pattern, right, in the midterms. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't materialized exactly as people were expecting. Right. So tell me, you know, tell us what happened about that. Like what is a typical trend and, and why did we see what we've seen? So I'll break it into a couple of things because it's a fascinating question and we're going to be talking about it for a long time about why it happened and people are blaming other people and, and there's lots of analysis going on. But first let's start with the trends. So typically political scientists will tell you um, that the midterm of particularly a first, uh, 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 the first election, the first term of a president. So President Joe Biden elected in 2020, big, massive turnout. Um, Some of those folks in the House of Representatives might not get elected when you don't have the top of the ticket. Voter turnout is lower in midterm elections. So that's one thing. Voter turnout is lower 
that hurts the president's party. But usually in Congress, we see almost a backlash against the president's party with the the opposite party being more excited, more engaged, and turning out to vote. Then every 10 years, we also have the factor that we've reapportioned. So California lost a seat in Congress and Texas gained two. And so that reapportionment this time hurt Democratic states or blue states. Now, that's not necessarily going to pan out because California has a bunch of Republicans, so we have to see. But then we go to gerrymandering, the redistricting in each of these states. And Texas absolutely gerrymandered so that Republicans had a big advantage in their state. We saw that in a couple other states where California and the irony that the control of the House of Representatives may come down to California, which is, you know, two-thirds Democrat control of the state legislature, who 20 years ago controlled this process and gerrymandered the heck out of things. We, the state of California, decided we wanted to go to an independent fair commission, which we did. It has been really good, um, but it didn't help some of the Democrats running this time. They were in tough races. And so control of the House of Representatives nationwide may come down to how our districts go. And we didn't gerrymander. We used an independent commission that I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, And so that may end up hurting the Democratic Party, but not as much as we expected, because you're right, the red wave did not crash. Um, We we talk about a blue seawall in all of these nautical terms. Um, So so the seawall held... Uh, and, and Democrats won seats that they were expecting to lose. You know, when we look back historically, Obama's first term, the Democrats lost 63 seats. Now, that wow. was a big, big rebuke of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. It was the reality that a whole bunch of conservative and moderate Democrats got swept up with Obama's coattails and the massive uh, 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 turnout. And so that was huge. We were expecting to see that all along, and particularly at the beginning of the year. And I think it's why during the primaries that Trump was endorsing candidates, that really extremist Republicans, they thought they were going to have a red wave. They thought they were going to have all of these historical trend advantages. They knew that they had gerrymandered in individual states. And so they felt like they could double down and go as extreme as possible because they weren't going to need to appeal to the middle. They weren't going to need to appeal to moderates the same way in California. If you're in a now competitive district, you would have to appeal to the moderates. So that all changed this summer with Dobbs. Yes. And so we saw in Kansas where they had a special election that Young women registered to vote in huge numbers and turned out to vote in huge numbers to uh, pass uh, the, the the reproductive rights, um, a special election. We've seen that in other states that have had that. Dobbs doesn't explain all of it. And clearly those polls tightened as we got closer to the election. Gas prices, inflation, crime in major cities. Uh, so It's a complicated answer to why somebody votes Republican or Democrat. And on top of that, we're not a parliamentary system where we are based on parties. As much as the media wants to make it that way, as much as polls want to make it that way, we're still really candidate-centered elections 
And you see that with the mailers. You see that with the commercials where it's vote for me because of this and vote against that person because of that. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see. And of course, we're recording this on, on Friday, November 11th. We don't yet have the, the outcome of Congress, but it is not uh, a red wave. It is not a bloodbath that uh, Donald Trump Jr. was uh, crowing about. And Fox uh, News uh, is is a little bit confused by it as well. And it, it their coverage kind of reminded me of the 2012 election where Mitt Romney lost after every Republican thought that they, they were going to win. And, uh, you know, Karl Rove marching off uh, an interview at one point because he's so disgusted. That led that. to, yeah, that was a seminal moment. And it led to after that election, when Mitt Romney lost and Obama won re-election against what the Republicans were expecting, it led to the Republican Party doing what they called an autopsy, but their word, not mine. Um, but they got in a room and a lot of Republicans really sat down and wrote this, what I think was a really good analysis of why they lost in 2012. And they had some solid recommendations for the for the GOP. Um, the Republican Party needed to appeal to women, needed to appeal to young people, needed to appeal to people of color. And then, of course, 2016, they nominate Donald Trump. So they have a battle in their party. No, and I think that that's so, that's exactly right. There's a battle in their party. And you really see that, I think, this election where some of the Republican results were uneven, right? Where um, you had Trump-backed candidates that were on the ballot, these very kind of anti-democracy candidates. Election deniers. Election deniers who, who were many in the majority, and I know you're keeping track of this, Jody, but so many of them lost in, in yeah. typical Republican strongholds. Right. And this was really a rebuke against Trumpism. And I think that that's what we see. You know, you see a place like Pennsylvania, right? Right. But in Right next door in New York, Republicans voted as we would expect them to vote. And so yes. some of this was uneven depending on the type of person and their ideologies that they're espousing in, yes. within the Republican Party in terms of who was running. Right. And and so that comes to candidate selection and Trump endorsing some of these candidates who were just horrifically bad. Um, and, and, you know, you go back 100 years or, or, or more to the time when parties chose their candidates um, and then we wanted to change it. The progressive movement comes along and we decide the voters are going to choose well, when when you put your massive Trump MAGA hat on the scale to choose the candidates without proper vetting, without really looking at what the public wants, you end up with really you know weak candidates when it goes forward. And 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 we'll have to dive deeper into some of those instances where um, you, you know in Pennsylvania governor where the Democrats are trying to put their uh, hand on the scale to get a bad or weak Republican. To, to run against, that's a dangerous game to play when you don't know the outcome. Um, and so we'll have to dig into all of this. But right now, um, Senate is still not decided. Uh, there are, the, the media says 48 Democrats, it's actually 46 Democrats plus two independents that caucus with the Democrats. So 48 
um, for the Democrats on the United States Senate and 49 for the Republicans with three um, three seats that are too close to call Arizona, um, Mark Kelly and Blake Masters. That's leaning towards Mark Kelly. We expect in the next day or so that he will be, you know, too, far enough ahead. He's at 52% to Blake Masters 46, but they, Arizona counts ballots very slowly. Um, but it, the, the numbers look really good for Mark Kelly, the Democrat, to be reelected. Nevada is still too close to call. Uh, Cortez Masto is uh, behind by just a little bit. Um, Laksek uh, is at 49%, the Republican, and uh, Cortez Masto is at 48%. But the but the votes that are still outstanding are in Democratic st- standholds. And, you know, whenever I say something like that, I picture Steve Kornacki and his magic. Oh magic. He does it way better than I do of uh, all the, the history and that. Yeah. All, um, Data geeks uh, love Steve Kornacki. Um, so if the Democrats can win both of those, um, that puts the, the Democrats and, and the independents that caucus with them at 50%, at, at 50 seats before we get to Georgia. And Georgia's is too close to call uh, and is going to go to a runoff. Um, they have runoff rules, as we all remember from 2021, when they had it mm-hmm. in January. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, their runoff is set for December 12th, uh, December 6th. And the deadline to register to vote for that election has already passed. That was a little quirk um, in 2021 that was uh, a little bit chaotic, where the January 5th election, the day before January 6th, um, actually allowed people to still register to vote after they knew there was a runoff. So that, that deadline has already passed in November. And so um, early voting will start, I think, right around Thanksgiving. I apologize to all the voters in Georgia that are tired of elections. We all are. And you have to do it again. Um, you might want to consider ranked choice voting, but uh, you're going to get flooded with money. And the political consultants love that uh, opportunity to get paid again. Uh, so um, the voters someday will get sick of it and say, we want to go to ranked choice voting instead. And we'll see. So that's the Senate. The House, 435 divided by two is 217. So the magic number the party needs is 218 to get control. And, you know, when when you were talking about the red wave, I mean, there were polls that were predicting 250 Republicans, 260 Republicans would win. Uh, so the fact that they are, you know, likely going to hit maybe 220 and have a two-seat majority is not great for the Republicans. Um, we, we're, we, we still have all these races that are too close to call. Um, and, and so right now, nobody has a, a majority, but it's likely that the Republicans will be able to do that, but only by a couple of votes. But again, also really unprecedented, right, for yes. a midterm election. Yes. What is yeah, it? because Democrats only had a five-seat majority to yes. begin with. So they had a really tight race, which is why, you know, a lot of the the, the approval ratings for, for Biden had to do with, you know, he had a really tough needle to thread when you only have five seats over the number you absolutely need to pass legislation. And the Democrats are a wide spectrum of conservative, maybe moderate Democrats still left um, and, and all the way over to super progressive socialist Democrats. Um, and, and so they have a really tough problem of, of keeping that. And Nancy Pelosi deserves a ton of credit 
for her leadership of really keeping the caucus together. I don't know if Kevin McCarthy will be able to do that if he's even elected. There's some challenges out there. And, you know, I, I, I've been joking um, that I need to get ahead of lettuce to, um, to, to compare how long the speaker last because there's going to be just a, a that, that was the, the Twitter feed that uh, was for the prime ministers of England that Liz Truss uh, uh, ended her tenure as, as prime minister more than a head of lettuce uh, went to spoil. But um, I, I think it's going to be a really difficult thing. And, and past speakers of the House have complained even when they had a bigger majority. Uh, you know, John Boehner would say that it was like herding cats across a desert trying to um, keep the Republicans on the same page. And I, I think some other analogies were, you know, nailing jello to a wall, trying to keep everybody together. It's tough to be Speaker of the House. It's so tough. And I just am thinking back to even those early days with Nancy Pelosi and what she's done these last couple of years. And really quickly, could you just explain to everybody or maybe, you know, in in a quick way, summarize what this might mean if Dems retain or, you know, have control of the Senate? What does this mean for the next couple of years? So if we'd had a red wave and the Republicans had taken the House and the Republicans had taken the Senate in large numbers, they, they had they had sort of listed their priorities and not a lot of people were listening. Um, you, you know, and a lot of a lot of pundits were saying like, okay, so you want gas prices to go down, but they want to cut Social Security and they want to impeach Biden. Um, that that's not what the voters want. If the if the Senate is in control of of the Democrats, whether it's a 50-50 split like we had before with Kamala Harris uh, having the dividing vote, or uh, a 51 or even a 52, um, that that I guess 51 is the best they could do with with the current setup. Um, so 51 could be the Democrat control. That means that legislation isn't going to get to Biden's desk. If Republicans control the House and Democrats control the Senate, that divided Congress means it's much more difficult for legislation to get to the president's desk. Um, it would have to be bipartisan. I don't know how much the Republicans want to work with the Democrats, um, but that that would be, there have been a couple of pieces of legislation in, in the past two years where they have worked together. However, um, that means that Biden doesn't have to, you know, buy in bulk the veto pen. Um, if Republicans were sending him legislation after legislation after legislation, he would have had to veto, 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 veto. Um, and so that stops if if that blue seawall holds the Senate, um, that at least just has divided Congress. Um, so we'll see. And again, if if the Republicans are at 20, 220, 221, 223, they've got a Freedom Caucus. They've got some real extreme people yeah. that don't want to do anything and just want to burn it all down from within. Um, that's going to be more difficult. Uh, I, I can see lots of, um, you know, investigations of everything. Um, that might be the only thing they agree on. But there are going to be some old school Republicans who really understand the damage that has been done by that. Yeah. Um, that aren't going to support that. So we might see more polarization in the Republican Party as some of these extremists continue 
Yeah. And they have a big decision, you know, um, that they have a big decision about who's the head of their party. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that the Republicans who see the potential for this election slip away, um, are, are blaming Trump and, you know, the, the, the red wave that hit was in Florida. And that means governor Ron DeSantis who, who won overwhelming, uh, reelection is likely going to challenge Trump. And that's why you see in the news, Trump and DeSantis fighting, um, or at least Trump fighting and maybe DeSantis trying to ignore it. But I I think that that's going to be a decision they have to make. I feel like you and I, our brains are connected because literally every question I want to ask you, you answer (laughs) before I can ask you this. (laughs) But this is also something that's really, I think, important and kind of related to one of the things you said earlier, which is the Republican agenda and how it's something that many voters don't necessarily want, especially young people today. And as college professors, you and I, I think, are oftentimes very much in touch with what's on young people's minds today and the kinds of things that they worry about. And what about young voters? You know, did they show up for this election? Because so much of you know, what we, what actually, the laws that are actually made, the policies that are ac- actually implemented are being made by voters who are disproportionately old and right. white, which is not reflective of the country, especially our youth. And so how did young voters impact the election? You know, there's so many progressive and equitable policies that passed across the country. This is something I was hoping you could also touch on a little bit. Absolutely. And T- tell me, tell us more about that. Yeah. And, and you and I have talked off, off the podcast about, um, I think because we're in the classroom with these young voters all the time and see their desire to actually know how to make a difference. Um, and, and they often get disrespected by political consultants. Yes. They are ignored by political consultants that the, the candidates then don't know who to trust about, do, you know, do you spend time trying to get young people to vote? I, I have complained this, for, for a long time about, were, yeah, yeah. It, within the campaign that I of course. worked on and helped to lead about young voters, it was very frustrating, not with right. my candidate, um, yeah. but it, it was something that I really struggle with. Right. And I, and I think it's because we're in the classroom with them um, and know that they will be engaged if you show them how to be engaged. Show them how to take that power Um, because they don't want decisions being made by old white folks. And I'm in that group. And I, and I tell them like, I shouldn't be making choices for you. Um, And, and I think that, you know, Viet Rise gets a ton of credit in in the June primary um, in Orange County. They did an amazing job reaching out to young voters and 18 to 34 year old voters turned out in Orange County higher than the next group, 35 to 50-year-olds in that June primary, which was astounding. And one of the things they were doing was engagement and information, real education plans of why it's important that you vote and really hitting on disinformation on Vietnamese TV in Little Saigon and that area. And so almost to say to those young voters, you cannot trust how older voters are voting because they're getting bad information. 
And I think when young people and Gen Z absolutely has never really lived in a, in a time where they could trust the adults in the room to make better choices for them. Um, nationally, politically, I think that they will see their power. And, and, and we see that, you know, Gen Z turned out in this election and, and the votes are still being counted and a lot of them voted late. Um, November is a terrible, awful time for college students to be asked to do an additional project of researching their ballot and voting. Um, it, it would not be when young people chose a national election, um, but that's what agrarian farmers wanted back in the 18th century. So let's let them control everything. <laughs> but oh by 2024, millennials and Gen Z voters outnumber voters who are baby boomers and older. And so that is one of the reasons you see a, a, a doubling down by the extremists, by the authoritarians, by the, the MAGA Trump voters, because they know they know their power is limited by the time clock of democratic shifts. And I, I think we're going to see that political shift as young people just say, this society does not work for us. And this is what we want. And that, that generational battle is going to happen at the ballot box. Yeah. And I want to amplify something you said earlier that I think is really important, which is the role of youth social movement organizations in mobilizing the youth. And research has shown this time and time again, that it's really what happens in between elections. It's the kind of voter engagement between the elections that youth orgs, community-based organizations, all of these really important um, ways in which people become integrated into communities and train people, work with people to help them understand the importance of elections and how their voices matter. And so I'm so glad you gave a shout out to Viet Rise and there's other groups like Resilience OC and yes. um, so many groups, so, many, so groups. many groups doing such good work and we want to amplify them and we want to give them a platform. And so if you're listening to this or you know of a group, please reach out because I think it's so important to understand and, 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 and your point of between elections is crucial of we need to get young people to actually pay attention to governing not just campaigning because what somebody says in a campaign is not necessarily how they're going to vote. You know, Ted Cruz is taking credit for things he voted against <laughs> nationally. We're seeing that all over, you know, Michelle Steele is taking credit for the infrastructure bill that she voted against. We're seeing local candidates take credit for things they voted against. And, and I think the hypocrisy um, of, of candidates who do that, that is not going to be tolerated by Gen Z. Um, and, and so there is a change. Um, they, they are not going to accept the status quo. And when they see the power that they have, and already in California, 18 to 34-year-old voters are the largest group of registered voters. We have done an incredible job. California State with Motor Voter. We have done registration drives in schools. We have done a really good job of registering people to vote. And now, We've got to pivot and understand that that was the easy part and engaging and informing and educating young people about local and state policies and politics is the next chapter. But we're seeing it, you know, in Kansas, when reproductive rights are on the ballot, young people show. I think that's so important what you just said, though, that that was the easy part registering. And now we have to put in the work. 
on the ground. Yeah, it's hard. It, it's really hard. And, and you know, I, I've shared before that I really think we've got to maximize and capitalize on that 12th grade civics class that is required in high school. But lots of high school teachers are teaching American government. They're teaching national politics. And, and what Gen Z really needs to engage is local, municipal elections, because you know, when the League of Women Voters does all these educational forums and, and to understand that young people know that sustainability efforts and climate change can be addressed at the local level, they are going to turn out in droves for city council. We just have to tell them that because it is massive choices are made at that level. Uh, you know, and, and when we talk about city council later on, um, we're going to talk about, you know, that the funding for a city is public safety like half of the budget for city council is going to be public safety of cops and firefighters. However, the decisions they make, the money that's involved is about land use. The decisions they make about affordable housing, about, about, you know, industrial versus mixed use versus residential is those decisions are made by planning commissions and city councils. And that's why you get developers that are spending tens of thousands of dollars. Where Why Bray and Fullerton have these shadowy oligarch developers yes. behind the scenes that most people don't know about. Um, but when you call it out, when you have local media, shout out Fullerton Observer, shout out Voice of OC, that highlight these things for people, then the voters can respond. And but I'm we're so still on national. We're still. On I know national. we're still on national. So I know. speaking of um, national, we did see one Gen Zer who was elected. Yeah, super excited, um, Maxwell Frost, and and we had a little sneak preview of this because he won the primary, and it's a safe Democratic district in in Florida, so it wasn't a surprise that he won in the general election. But he's twenty five years old. Uh, Maxwell Frost is the first Gen Z. He won't be the last, um, but 25 is the minimum age that you have to be constitutionally to get elected to the House of Representatives. So Gen Z is not yet eligible to be in the United States Senate, but that's coming every two years. We move that number down and more and more of this new generation. And of course, millennials got elected all across the nation, um, but, but he won by 60% of the vote. So that's super exciting. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Let's um, talk a little bit about, really quickly, I think some of these other kinds of progressive policies that were passed across the country. Yeah, and, and one of the, the progressive policies that I love seeing, and, and what, I sh- what I tell my students is that, you know, the, the filmmakers, the producers of the, the documentary 13th, won this election, when we see criminal justice reform that was highlighted in that documentary. We've seen that before with, uh, you know, the changes to SeaWorld um, because of the documentary about about the abuses of animals. And so Vermont, Alabama, Tennessee, and Oregon, all on this ballot, voted to abolish slavery in prison. This idea that when you are a prisoner, you can be mandated by the prison to work. And and some of the policies, Louisiana is awful and it's not yet on the ballot. They need to change it. But um, in these states, and I was not expecting Alabama to do that. I was not expecting Tennessee to do that. And so the the, the amount of attention that has been given to criminal justice reforms and prison reform is incredible because we shouldn't allow prisoners to be forced to work with no pay, especially when 
the prisons are getting paid. The corporations that are are hiring the prison gangs to work, chain gang, uh, uh, you can kind of imagine, are getting paid for that contract labor. Um, so that's a really big, big change. And and I think when young people understand that criminal justice reform, that police brutality reform is on the ballot in local elections, they will start showing up and care about the sheriff and the district attorney. Um, but we haven't gotten that message out of where it is. And so when it's absolutely clear, when it is a ballot initiative, it is easy to see. Uh, and that's what we're we're seeing in these states. And, and then, I, I'm going to just yeah. add something really quickly and into that, Please which do. is that I assign 13 to my students. I, I showed in class and Ava DuVernay, yeah. um, who wrote that film. It's really important that people understand there's a range of ways that we can get this kind of information out yes. and that art can also be a form of activism and education. Oh, and so, oh say that again. Say the, that again. The ways in which art and artists can be a form of activism and education, yes. right? It's not yes. just up to us sitting in the classroom Correct. discussing these things. And so there's a there's so many ways in which young people and others can contribute to social change in our society. And the, and 13th was such a brilliant and important film. Yes. And I just wanted to reiterate that because oftentimes students and others say, you know, what can we do beyond voting? And there are ways that you can use your power and your education in these kind of different realms. Well, and, and, and you think of Hassan Minaj and you think of John Oliver and you think about these comedians who are using long form public policy topics to make a point. And, and it, it educates all of us in a really great way. Um, and and so yeah, those documentaries are crucial. And and the next generation of of policy influencers, I think, are documentarians. I think it is the just a fascinating way. And so I'm hoping that uh, we can shine some light on the horrific measures of um, you know public defenders across the nation. We get spoiled in California because we have an incredible system, but uh, Texas and Georgia and lots of other states are just not uh, providing that if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Well, let's dive into that. And so we've got to shine some light on that. And then I think we can get change. So other things that happened across the nation, um, Michigan and Connecticut expanded voting access. Um, Maryland and Missouri legalized marijuana. I was not expecting Missouri to do that. Uh, And so, and that, sets the stage for a showdown nationally of Congress having to change the law on Schedule One narcotic of marijuana because state after state after state after state has legalized marijuana and allows it. And now we're in this supremacy clause bind, this federalism bind of you are following your state law but are still violating the national law. Um, and so that's that's been headed to a Supreme Court case or a congressional law for a long time. And and when we're hitting not only Maryland but Missouri, um, and and Maryland is important just 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 ge- geographically because it's so close to Washington D.C. Um, and so we may get that um, pro-choice initiatives. You know, we we talked a little bit about Dobbs being a factor in driving people out. I think we see every time it's on the ballot, 
um, so Vermont and Michigan and, of course, California um, passed pro-choice initiatives protecting those reproductive rights. And for 50 years, um, we've had a conversation that's very partisan and political, pro-life, pro-choice, and the reality of, of the examples that are coming to people's attention about what abortion actually is, that abortion is healthcare, that it's not just a procedure that is an elective choice to end a pregnancy, but it's also how healthcare actually saves lives. And, and when it comes to a situation like a miscarriage, an incredibly wanted pregnancy that tragically ends in a miscarriage, and the procedure to remove the fetus that is no longer viable is an abortion. It is an abortion. And so we are denying that and people will die. Um, and, and so we're having a broader conversation that we should have been having for 50 years. Um, and again, we're seeing a couple of films. We're, we're seeing documentaries about the Janes. We're seeing a, a, a fictional um, film about Call Jane that, that really highlights what happened before Roe. No, I agree with you. And this is something that's very personal to me because I had a missed miscarriage myself and had to have a DNC. Yeah. And I can't imagine not being able to have that choice. Right. And one of my best friends is an ER doctor in right here in Southern California. And she says that it's against the oath she took to Correct. not be able to provide the kind of care and support that people right. need. And I have so many um, medical professionals that are very concerned, but just as a woman, this is a whole host of a right. discussion around power and control right. and so much more. And also, I just want to add that this, you know, Dobbs was the, the decision was made by people who were put into positions of power by a president who lost by presidents who lost the popular vote. And it is not a popular um, policy across the nation. And so I think that this is something that we need to be wary of. This is a whole other podcast. I hope we discuss this issue. (laughs) Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. We've got to talk about all of that. I mean, it's a, a lot of really important stuff. So. What's next? What else do you want to know? You ready to well, talk California? Wanna, yes. Tell us what is going on in California. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm just refreshing all the time, even though I know we only get election results in Orange County once I a know. now. But tell I us know. what is going on in California statewide offices. Well, and 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 you know, I I always jokingly take credit for the Orange County Registrar of Voters putting the clock, the countdown clock, just because they <laughs> wanted to actually say Jody stop hitting refresh, we're gone for the night. Because I would just hit refresh, 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 refresh to see what the outcome was. And so every 24 hours at 5 p.m., you know, all across Orange County uh, political junkies uh, stop whatever they're doing and uh, check the results. And so thrilled that we will get one tonight uh, at 5 p.m., even though it's Veterans Day. Um, Thank you, Bob Page. And thank you to the Orange County uh, Registrar of Voters staff for working uh, because we cannot wait until Monday. So California, different registrar of voters do things differently, and we are so incredibly, incredibly lucky and grateful to uh, the great example of Neil Kelly, who recently retired, and Bob Page, who is taking that up, that they are so incredibly efficient and, for me, fast 
Um, they get that out at 8.05 on election night and then 5 p.m. every day after and multiple uh, refresh on that night. But what we know so far is that there's no surprise to the California statewide elections. Um, every Democrat that was on the ballot won uh, and by pretty big margins. Uh, and, and that's not surprising because of a couple of factors. There's you know, two Democratic voters for every Republican voter statewide. So Democrats have a huge advantage. And then California voters tend to like to reelect our governors. Um, the last one-term governor was Colbert Olson uh, in the 1940s. Uh, even Gray Davis in 2002 won re-election, though his approval rating was below 20%, and we threw him out of office the next year. But we didn't like the Republican running, and so we waited for Arnold Schwarzenegger. So no surprise that Gavin Newsom won. Um, most people didn't even know who the Republicans were in these races. And he didn't, Gavin Newsom didn't even campaign. Didn't even campaign. Took out more ads in Florida and Texas trolling the governors than he did here, and he didn't need to. Um, but when we get at the very end, when we talk about propositions, his um, his campaign money helped defeat Prop 30. Uh, that was leading in the polls uh, by 55%, and his campaign ads against it uh, took it to defeat. And the California Democratic Party the, supported it. Uh, almost everybody else was against it. Gavin Newsom was against it. The California Republican Party was against it. Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association was against it. And the California Teachers Association. That is not a group of four that you, I think, have ever seen. Such nor... an odd coalition. Yes. yes. <laughs> Politics made very strange bedfellows. Yes. So. Um, so the one bright spot for the Republicans on the statewide offices, Gavin Newsom won, the lieutenant governor, St secretary of state, treasurer, attorney general, uh, insurance commissioner. Those were all incumbents. They all won. But the one we were watching was the controller's race. Because Betty Yee was termed out of office after two terms, this was the one to watch because there wasn't an incumbent. Uh, Malia Cohen was the Democrat endorsed out of San Francisco uh, political machine. And Lan He Chen, the Republican who had been appointed by Obama, had some money to spend. Um, he had more money to spend than uh, Brian Dolly, who was running for governor and campaigned all across the state and really was the Republicans' best chance to win statewide office since 2006 when Arnold Schwarzenegger won his re-election campaign. Um, and so the, the, the numbers are less. Lan He Chen did well, um, but certainly couldn't overcome the, the Democratic wave in California voters. Uh, so that was disappointing for Republicans and, and disappointing for the state in that uh, we, we need a functional government and, and a one-party state has some problems. And, and one of the problems is that the California Democratic Party endorsed some really weak candidates um, and they got elected, um, even though there are some questions about um, insurance commission, Ricardo Lara, that came down in the June primary. There was another Democrat that was just neck and neck to make that top two. We may see that more and more where Democrat versus Democrat in these statewide elections. And just a strategic shout out to Republicans. If you can't elect your own guys uh, on the statewide ballot, you might want to start looking for moderate Dems to support, to make the top two primary and at least make the Democrats spend some money. Um, but uh, they're not paying me to advise them, so I don't. I, I don't think they're going to listen. Um, <laughs> but unfortunate for this podcast that David Dodson uh, didn't win 
uh, Mike Schaefer, who we've talked about over and over and over as a massively flawed candidate, was endorsed by the California Democratic Party. Um, they're going to have to explain that um, because I think a lot of people, Dave Dodson did an incredible job publicizing, getting people to pay attention to that race because it was a Democrat versus Democrat. If the Republican had won in that top two, it would have been a, a, a landslide for the Democrats. So We'll see what comes out of that. But Mike Schaefer is term limited out. So we expect that Dave Dodson will easily get the endorsement and support in four years if he's willing to put himself through this all again. Um, he, he and his wife just spent a lot of time driving all over Southern California, basically every county that's not LA in Southern California. That's just a huge, massive um, swath of, of geography to cover. And they really, really worked hard to do that. So um participation trophy to Dave Dodson for that. Um, really and truly, he tried his best to give us a better board of equalization. Number. It's so much work. So much work. It's so much yeah. work. Yeah, and exhausting, exhausting. Yeah. So Alex Padilla, of course, uh, won the United States Senate race uh, easily. He, he, you know, just a little quirk, he's in a short-term office, so he starts um, immediately and serves until January when his full-term starts because he had that little appointment to replace Kamala Harris and that ended on election night. So he's safely there for another six years. And first uh, Latinx uh, Senator from the state of California. Yeah. Yeah. I think there might've been one in, in the uh, late 19th century. Um, but certainly in modern times, uh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so of course, attention for the United States Senate from California sort of peaks into 2024 of will Diane Feinstein at 91 years old run for re-election. And if not, you know, we got to shuffle the, the, the playing board of does she retire and have Gavin Newsom appoint someone or much pressure for him not to do that from folks like Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, who would very much like to run. Yeah. Um, and so that's a decision for another time. And I'll we, put we, in the show uh, the show links that um, maps the Secretary of State for a very short period of time um, has these great maps that I love to play around with. They uh, disappear once there's a next special election, and I don't yet know when that will be. But for now, you can go and look at the maps and see, and and you really do get an idea of what California looks like. And for those of us who are kind of insulated in the Orange County or Southern California bubble, um, you see the the incredible swath of Republican support in the rural areas of Northern California um, and and the Central Valley for um, the Republicans, just not a lot of people. And so they're overwhelmed by the coastal and Southern California outcomes. Yes, please archive these maps for us. I will. They're great. Um, yeah, and uh, and Newsom's right now today at uh, you know fifty eight percent. That number will likely go up. And so the real question for Gavin Newsom is not will he win. That was um, absolutely a sure thing. It's whether or not he'll beat his recall numbers. Um, and and so that's what we're looking at. You know, will he hit sixty two, sixty three percent? And it's, I just don't know what the number, the, the massive universe of votes that are left to be counted all across the state. And that's a, that's a really good kind of segue into maybe just if you could talk a second about voter turnout, because 
we really still don't know where we're at right. because the, the ways in which we vote have shifted significantly. Yes. And yes. so what, what does turnout look like thus far? And then also kind of how do, what do we have left to count and what are the trends with those ballots that we yeah. have to count? So, so you and I know as social scientists that it's really frustrating to have such a small sample size. That, that we really like to have lots of data to analyze. And, and when you say like, okay, so we could compare this to 2014, the last election where a governor was running for re-election, except that wasn't all mail-in ballots. Um, so we knew better what the outcome was going to be. And then you could say, okay, well, how many times have we voted all by mail? Well, that's only since March 2020. So we have that, we have November, we have June. Well, that's only three other elections to compare to. And two of those, well, one of those was during a pandemic, November, March, we voted right before the shutdown. So it's hard to know, but we get some trends. So to start, um, overwhelmingly the people who have voted already are older 50, you know, 69% of the votes cast so far are by voters over 50. Um, and what we don't know is if every single registered voter had a ballot mailed to them, everybody who didn't already mail it in could have collectively decided on election day to put that in a post box and mail it in. And we might still not have seen that. They might still be in the mail process. But that's unlikely that we had 100% voter turnout. Um, and, and so then you have to look at trends. And from 2020, that November election during a pandemic with President Trump running for re-election, saying day after day after day and tweeting while he still had access to that account, that you couldn't, that his voters should not trust the mail, that they should vote in person on election day. Um, we see that that still is what has happened in Orange County and statewide, that a lot of Republican voters waited and voted in person at vote centers. So even though they were mailed a ballot on October 10th, they waited and went to the vote center to cast their ballot, not with the mailed in ballot, but at the vote center. So that advantage, when we're looking at what the votes that are still out there, leans Democrats. And, and we've seen that, that Democrats vote late, that Democrats vote by mail. But a big shift from 50 years ago when absentee trends were that, you know, Republicans were more likely to be on vacation and have a legitimate reason to request an absentee ballot before we had all of this change. So Democrats tend to vote late. So a lot of the votes that are left to count are democratic leaning or Democratic voters. And so we'll see these numbers shift. But what we know is that the Republican and Democratic Party do a really good job of motivating and getting out the vote. So the NPP voters um, are have lower voter turnout. And maybe that's because they didn't belong to the political party because they're not really engaged. Maybe it's because that voter, you know, at, at motor voter when they got a driver's license, they just decided they didn't want to really participate. But definitely to get the vote efforts from the Democratic and Republican parties turn out their vote at higher numbers than those who aren't affiliated with the political party. 
Um, so what we see, what we're looking for is how do these numbers change and what can we learn about the voters who vote late, who drop off their ballot on election day, who mail in their ballot on election day, that postmark. So we still have a couple of, of days of not even knowing what votes haven't been received yet by the registrar voters. And I think that's what's really new about these last few years is having to wait. I mean, yes. I remember in 2020 being glued in front of the TV for like a week. I don't think my child ate that week. Right. I don't know what time she right. went to bed. Thank all God things, for right? Uber Eats. Yes, let's <laughs> deliver things. Yeah, absolutely. And even today, we still see that we, you know, we can't really certify elections until. Right. Who knows and that was on. always the case. It was always the case that we didn't certify elections until a month later. These poor registrar voters you know, are like, we have always done it that way. But we, the voters from media, from ah. newspapers, the elections were called. And because there weren't these late ballots, um, they had the votes. They just needed to process them. And most of the, the elections didn't change. What's frustrating for, for, for election watchers is that, you know, my, my election is on overdrive the second I get my ballot on, you know, October 10th, and I don't know the outcome until maybe Thanksgiving. So now we've gone from election day yeah. to election season where it's two months. So the, the adrenaline is hard to sustain. Um, so yeah, we, it's always taken a long time to certify the votes and that, and that's true nationwide, you know, the, 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 the TV stations that would call the presidential election, it's like, well, that's based on exit polls. That, that's, that's just if the margin is wide enough to be able to call it. And so the polarized nature of our politics today, um, also contribute to that because the elections are just too close to call. But 2018, um, you know, we were waiting um, for for elections. I, what 2016? Josh Newman uh, didn't get to go to freshman orientation in the Senate because he was still waiting for that election to be called. You're right. Um, uh, you know, uh, Young Kim is in two freshman orientation pictures for the for the freshman uh, class of the House of Representatives because she thought that she beat Gil Cisneros um, in in 2018 with that blue wave of Trump's midterm right. election where there were tons of Democrats that went. And then once all the ballots were counted three weeks later, she had lost. Um, and then of course, 2020, she won. Um, but we were still waiting for a number of seats. And um, so, yeah, it, it's not new, but it's doesn't make it less frustrating that it's happened before. Um, and, and it's, it, it's hard to wait. We want it's that. So hard to wait. Oh my God. It's so hard to wait. Yeah. Speaking of um, some local level names there, tell us a little bit about what's going on more locally here in LA and Orange County. Yeah, so the two big races, and I hardly pay attention to Los Angeles County. It's just too huge, but um, it's hard to avoid the mayor and the sheriff's race. And and, and, you know, huge shout out to Gustavo Ariana and the Los Angeles Times for covering these races with um, humor and detail and interviews. Love um, you, Gustavo. Yeah, my good every, friends. 
everything I know about Los Angeles races was uh, the, the Gustavo and uh, the Los Angeles Times. And then just recently, I got to catch up with Rafe Sunshine at Cal State Fullerton and, and got his take on it. He's at the Pat Brown Institute at Cal State LA. But a um, $100,000,000 spent by Rick Caruso. Um, and, and so I jokingly told my students that there were two really big winners this past week, the whoever bought the lottery ticket and is now a billionaire uh, and Rick Crusoe's political consultant that win or lose, uh, his consultant probably made 15, 18 million dollars. Um, those media buys were incredible. Um, all, and, and I was getting them. He just saturated the market and didn't worry about what was over the Los Angeles city border. But um, they are neck and neck, and it's possible that uh, Karen Bass with those, uh, Rick Crusoe is at 50%, 50.2, and Karen Bass at 49.8. It's really as close as you could possibly get. Um, and although it's always better to be ahead, it makes you feel better, uh, Karen Bass can probably rest easy that those late coming votes are going to lean Democrat. Now, Rick Caruso says he's a Democrat. Um, and, and just recently became one. So I don't know that they'll all break for Karen Bass, but um, that's a really tight election. And even if she's only winning 51 or 52% of the vote totals, that will eventually put her over the top, but too close to call. Um, but I just think of all the things you could do with $100 million that aren't run for mayor. I think of all the things you could do with that money, and it's mind-blowing. It is indeed mind-blowing. So uh, LA County Sheriff, uh, again, uh, all thanks to Gustavo for keeping me informed on that race. Uh, but uh, the incumbent, Alex Villanueva, who is uh, really, you got to read Gustavo's columns to understand exactly how much of a character this guy is. Um, but is is definitely going down to defeat. And that was just a referendum on him. I don't know that people really knew a whole lot about uh, uh, the L Long Beach fellow, uh, Robert Luna, but he is absolutely in, in the lead with 58%. So he is most certainly going to win that. And um, I don't think anything can save Villanueva. Um, and then we'll see because... Um, you know, the, the, the best news for Luna is that he won. And then the bad news for Luna is that he won because the sheriff's <laughs> department of Los Angeles is a really, really complicated um, and, and dysfunctional uh, organization to lead. And so a lot of promises were made and you, you've got to get um, a lot done there. And I don't know if what he'll be able to do, but stay tuned for the mayor's race. Stay tuned for the mayor's race. Maybe we could put one of Gustavo's articles in the show notes. Absolutely. He's got a bunch of them. He's done such good work. So let's talk about Orange County. Yeah, yeah. let's talk Orange County. So um, the, the the turnout so far is 36.9%. Uh, and again, that will go up. We have about 300,000 ballots to, to, to left to process and to count. Um, overall, the registration, the Democratic Party of Orange County, shout out Otta, shout out AJ, shout out everybody who's worked on that because they've really done a good job of registering voters to be Democrats. And shout so, out to Lindsay, our PDA yes. Oh, huge, huge, huge. Yeah. Karen Lawson. I mean, tons All and tons of, of people so many get to share people. that. And of course, the elected folks themselves that are Democrats, which, you know, I, I remember in 1996, Loretta Sanchez first uh, Democrat to win 
Congress in Orange County. And that just like a veil had dropped that Democrats lived here um, and could possibly win. So a whole generation of people who get credit for that, um, including, you know, Neighbors United for Fullerton, uh, a a local group of um, nonpartisan, but a bunch of Democrats who have just worked on the ground to do that. So right now, uh, 38% of registered voters are Democrats, um, 33% are Republicans, and then 24, uh, no party preference. So what we see is the ballots that are left to process, and as frustrating as we just said this is, it's good because they are so secure. They double check the signature. They make sure that you haven't voted before. They make sure there's no voter fraud. There's no voter impersonation. And it may take weeks because if, for instance, I turned in my ballot through the mail, they receive it tomorrow. They check my signature and they see that my signature doesn't match. Maybe I broke my arm and my signature doesn't look like my driver's license signature and all those other government signatures they've got on file that they cross-reference with amazing computer technology, um, they will then send me a letter and I can go and cure my ballot. And in some of these races that are tight, you know, we've got a Brea school district race that is 40 votes deciding who wins and who loses. That might tighten up. It might be one vote. In 2020, we rolled the dice to determine the outcome. So if you uh, get a letter that you need to cure your ballot, cure your ballot. Go cure your ballot and get your signature. Um, But we've got, um, you know, we're not sure who voted. We don't know. There are still uh, votes we don't even know. They haven't arrived yet through the mail. Um, But 356,000 in the county. And and then, you know, depending on where those ballots are, the cities may have races that are too close to call. Um, But we see that the ballots returned at vote centers, big block, 129,000 left to count as of Friday. Um, they're doing that today. Uh, but the biggest block is from drop boxes left to process. Uh, almost 200,000 are from there. So, you know, a few duplicated ballots that they have to figure out, a few um, military ballots that, you know, less than 500 of those that have to be processed, a few that registered to vote on that day. But the big two blocks that that we're looking at are the ballots returned at vote centers that could be Republican leaning if Republicans trust drop uh, the vote centers to hand their ballot on election day and then um, drop boxes left to process, people who put them in drop boxes, 193, and then an unknown number of vote by mail that are going to arrive by the mail. So many votes left to count. So yeah. what else do we have going on in Orange County? So Michelle Michelle Bell is our new Orange County Superior Court judge. Um, and, and for listeners of the podcast, you know, I'm a huge fan of Michelle Bell and uh, uh, listen to that podcast. And she's going to do incredible, wonderful things and wide range of support. So we're thrilled that she won. Um, the congressional races... We know the outcome of most of them. There are two that are too close to call. Um, one, uh, both of them leaning towards the Democrats, eventually winning. Young Kim easily won her congressional race uh, 40. Uh, Lou Korea easily won re-election to congressional re- uh, district 46. Michelle Steele um, really turned out the, the vote uh, in congressional district 45. We'll talk a little bit about disinformation campaign um, and, and Jace 
uh, Jay Chen did an incredible job campaigning, um, but just a, a number of factors, including that incumbency, worked against him, um, even though Michelle Steele hadn't represented most of the area. Um, the, the one that we're all watching is Katie Porter versus Scott Baugh. It's too close to call, super close. Um, but if those ballots that are left to count lean Democrat, she will um, inch up. Um, and then South Orange County, North San Diego County, um, Mike Levin and Barry Marriott, too close to call, but leaning towards um, Mike as an incumbent. Um, the I'll, I'll put the show link uh, to some of the incredible data that the Registrar of Voters has um, that really is fun to watch uh, where you, know, you can type in your address and see how people voted for all different things and you can learn something about your neighbors um, and, and see it by race. So that's kind of fun to see. But we definitely see in that Katie Porter race that um, the coastal areas lean Republican and, you know, Irvine and, and some of the um, more Southern areas lean uh, to, to the Democrats. And so what's fascinating when you start diving into the data is to see, you know, for, for instance, let's take this race. 72% of the people who voted at a vote center in person voted for Scott Ball in this district. And Katie Porter was, was winning the majority of those vote by mail. So 58% vote by mail leaned to Katie Porter. So that means that if the votes we have still to count lean to vote by mail, Katie Porter has a huge advantage. And that also kind of works in favor of some of the other candidates, right? Like our candidates for assembly. Yes. Um, Anybody that that identifies or is or is winning in Democratic, um, you know, even those nonpartisan ones, if voters knew that they were Democrats, that helps them those vote by mail. And I love that the registrar has those. Registrar in Orange County is yeah. a dream for data geeks. Yeah. So then we'll talk Senate. Um, no real surprises that South uh, District uh, is, is the only one that's too close to call. It's leaning towards a Democrat, Catherine Blakespear, but Matt Gunderson could pull it out. I, I don't know how that works. And I don't I don't know enough about the San Diego votes that um, are, are the majority of the district. But um, Bob Archuleta easily won, Tom Umberg easily won, the, the Democrats on the ballot, and then Kelly Serrato. And uh, Janet Wynn easily won there, and all four of those were incumbents. So the one without an incumbent is too close to call. Um, so not super exciting numbers on Senate, nothing we're watching except for that South County. Some exciting things on Assembly, um, and, the, and the ones to watch are um, Cotty Petri, Petri Norris is in the lead, um, but she had an incumbent versus incumbent race. And then uh, Sharon Quirksilva is just inching um, every every update is helping her just marginally, but she had a really tough race with a brand new district. Um, a lot of people who had never met her before didn't know her before, um, and she she campaigned well. Um, but the the those independent redistricting can can sometimes really shift up. Um, so Sue Yu, uh, too close to call, but Sharon Quirksilva probably going to benefit from those late votes. Uh, Avelino Valencia uh, on the Anaheim City Council easily won his assembly race, which means that there's an opening. So when we talk about Anaheim, there's a caveat that that, that seat is going to be open. And if they appoint, the majority of the city council matters. Phil Chen easily beat his, uh, his challenger, who was a write-in. Lori Davies easily won, Diane Dixon easily won, Tri Ta easily won. So we've got um, those three that 
are we're looking at Sharon Corksova likely to win, Cotty Petrie Morris likely to win, and then a Republican versus Republican down um, the the south part of the county all the way over uh, uh, east uh, or yeah eastern um, uh, of Marietta Temecula, so a really solid Republican district that was carved out there with Kate Sanchez versus Matt Ram, and we'll see, but a Republican's going to take that. So want to talk Orange County Board of Supervisors? Yes, this is such a fascinating. Yeah, so Doug Chafee, uh, way out front, and, and we see when we look that um, Republican voters with nobody to vote for chose Doug Chafee. Um, and and he wasn't endorsed by the Democratic Party. Sunny Park was, um, which was a division uh, that that kind of split the Democratic Party. Um, and so he's in the lead. Um, and the the supervisor race in the center of the county is too close to call. Uh, Vicente Sarmiento and Kim Bernice win really neck and neck. They've kind of swapped uh, who's in the lead. So we'll have to wait until all those votes are counted, but both are Democrats. So the supervisor's race that we're all focused on is Katrina Foley, the Democrat versus Patricia Bates, the Republican. Too close to call, but Katrina, if she benefits from those late votes, um, really will um, uh, benefit from that. So Doug Chafee at 54%. So that's a called race. Sunny Park was only at 42%. Um, and then Katrina Foley at 50%, just inching uh, up and Pat Bates uh, 49%. So if the the vote by mail leans to uh, Katrina Foley, she will win re-election in an area that she you know hardly touched upon in the first um, time she was elected in that special election. And, and that has following the same trend where um, even though it's nonpartisan on the ballot, enough people knew. <laughs> um, and so Pat Bates was winning by 66% in Vote Center, where those Republicans were voting solidly for her, and Katrina Foley, 56% um, voting by mail for her. So she was winning in the vote by mail. And again, these trends are consistent. Yeah. And uh, by candidate. And so it's just fascinating to see what we're looking at here, Jody, when we see these this data from the registrar about how votes are breaking by mail-in versus Vote yes. Center. Yes. Yes. And and that's why you know when people are predicting things, it's not just that they're guessing, right? They're 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 using data, they're using trends, they're using what we know. Um, so it looks good for candidates that voters knew were Democrats or Democrats were supporting. However, you want to say that in nonpartisan terms. Tell us a little bit about the the. Um, city council elections. What's going on in each city here? Yeah, we so, so we'll, we'll start with Anaheim. Um, Ashley Aiken is is in the lead. Um, you know, she hotly contested race four years ago, just lost by a few hundred votes. Um, Soar, the, the Saving Our Anaheim Resort, uh, really doubled down on um, the, the candidates that were running for city council. Um, and and supported those who had supported them. So um, the the Harry Sadu group with uh, Gloria Mai and uh, Natalie Ruvikabal uh, uh, and Natalie Meeks and and the reformers uh, Carlos Leon Aljabar and and Hari Shankal Law are are not doing well and and some of them are too close to call and some aren't. But that's going to make it tough 
for Ashley Aiken to get some of the reform measures she really wanted in Anaheim. That's exactly why Disneyland through Save Our uh, Anaheim Resort uh, backed the, the, the other people. Um, and, and so it, it will be tough to get changes. And of course, with that assembly race, um, if the, the resort-backed candidates have a majority, then they can simply add a, another one to replace Avelino um, and, and not have a special election. And there's arguments that you don't want to have a special election after you just spend all this money on the uh, election and voters are tired, but it does cost money for the city to have a special election. So that's why sometimes they'll appoint, but um, uh, that's how my got on the board to begin with. Um, we still have too close to call in Anaheim for their Union High School district. Uh, Jessica Guerrero and Billy Joe Wright um, are, are neck and neck. And so we'll see what happens there. Um, let's talk uh, Fullerton because um, we're going really long. So I'll put uh, uh, some uh, things in the show notes for the other races. Um, Jose Trinidad Castaneda and uh, Connor Chapman Joyce on one Buena Park, but let's let's dive into Fullerton because that's the one we're uh, really focused on, and certainly you have uh, the most knowledge of as you've been walking the neighborhoods and the doors. So Lauren Klatsker is in the lead, and it looks like we can call that race. We're still, you know, publicly going to wait until we get all of the ballots counted, but she's ahead uh, by a lot. Ruthie Hansha in the Fullerton School District is ahead. Uh, votes need to be counted, but she's definitely benefiting from the um, mail-in ballots that are still coming in. And then for Fullerton City Council, uh, Dr. Shana Charles and Ahmad Zara. Um, are, are ahead. And again, we got to wait for our, the votes to be counted, but there's definitely um, some trends where all four of those seem like they're in a good position as more votes are counted. When we look, um, you know, the ballots returned so far uh, is 37% in the city for Fullerton. Um, and so we still have a lot of votes to count, but um, overall we had um, good turnout in Fullerton. And when you look at the maps, Lauren Klatsker won by 57% so far. That may go up with more Democrats voting. Matthew Hook at 41%. Um, Ruthie Hanschat in the school district, 48 to Lisa Wozab's 39. Rudy Garcia is the third with 11. And, and so it's pretty safe. And, and those trends are holding where Lauren Klatsker got 61% of the, um, 64% of the vote by mail ballots. And Matthew Van Hook got 61% of the vote center. Um, and so those vote center numbers are done. It's just maybe Republicans turned in their ballot to the vote center at the um, um, at, on election day that still have to be verified and counted. Same for Ruthie Hanschat, um, vote by mail. She was uh, uh, the trend of 54, 55%, and Lisa Wozab at um, 56%. So th those trends kind of um, happen. And again, I just want to say one little thing about that. You yeah. see... You definitely see here in some of these local races we talked about with the national races where you have these far right um, fringe kind of candidates endorsed by, um, you know, far right groups and kind of espousing far right ideas about school boards who are being rebuked at the ballot box in these yes. kinds of instances here with our school board yeah. in Fullerton, which... Just full and, disclosure, I've been super involved in and, right. you know, co-led uh, Ruthie's campaign with my, one of my dear friends, Keiko Suda. Um, but you really see this playing out at the local level in Fullerton. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things um, that, that, that really happened in Fullerton that is interesting, you know, we, we had articles writing about the disinformation campaigns and the mailers. Um, Fullerton had that with, with, um, you know, the, the Fullerton taxpayers group. I don't remember their exact name, but funded by Bushala. Great shout out to Fullerton Observer for sort of talking about that. Um, and and Bushala behind a lot of the attack uh, on on Ahmad Zara, and I was really proud of the community um, of, of former electeds um, and and current electeds on the the school boards and and community um, uh, leaders who took out an ad in the Fullerton Observer saying you know we will not stand for these dirty politics that are lying to voters that are trying to portray Ruthie Hanchett as an extremist MAGA Trump supporter when she's not. Um, and 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 we certainly saw, you know, tons of negative signs for Ahmad Zara there. There were mailers, um, all kind of funded by the same group of p- folks who want power in this community. And it's refreshing to see that the voters saw through that. Um, it's refreshing to see that dirty politics didn't win. Um, it's possible in the supervisor's race that Sunny Park will need to take a look at the the really unfair mailers that that she sent out. Negative campaigning is a reality, um, but there's degrees of fairness and, and the voters get to decide that. And whether or not things will change, I have no idea. Um, but at least in Fullerton, I'm pleased to see that the lies didn't win. And I think it's also important to, to realize that voters are smarter than yeah. what a lot of people give us credit yeah. for. So yeah. So I, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk Placentia, Yorba Linda. Um, There's a split there. Um, uh, We're seeing, and and again, the votes may swing, but um, Karen Freeman is just behind by a lot. Um, She was the incumbent on the Placentia Yorba Linda Unified School District Board that we talked about in in great depth on our last podcast about public education. Todd Frazier, who, you know, really um, trafficked in a, a lot of misinformation, a lot of uh, lies about Karen Freeman and the board and a lot of lies about what's happening in the Placentia the school district. He's ahead 47% at the state, Karen Freeman behind at, at 37%. There's a, a, kind of a spoiler with Steve Slauson in there. Carrie Buck holding on to her lead with 52, uh, 53% uh, with Richard Engel uh, trailing behind at 47%. And so um, that's uh, you know, I don't envy Carrie Buck if she's the dissenting voice. Um, uh, she can, you know, she's she's done that for two years with Karen Freeman uh, on the dais with her. Uh, she may be the dissenting voice for another two years. Um, and and Placentia or Belinda voters are going to have to decide what they want in their district. Um, and, and we're going to have to get some really good candidates and we're going to have to look at the election rules and make sure that that the defenders of public education support one and only one um, candidate for those three spots. Um, and, and that work starts next week. Yeah, that work starts start next starts next week. And I really would love to see more collaboration among cities here in North Orange County and thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um you know, I think Carrie Buck uh, has has done an, an incredible job of really, you know, just sticking with the truth, not trafficking in lies, not trying to demonize 
her uh, uh, her fellow uh, board members. But, um, you know, Becky Gomez was on the Orange County Board of uh, Education and was the lone dissenting voice. And it is not fun, um, but it's really crucial, I think, for members of the public, for parents and students to keep showing up to those meetings, to keep, uh, you know, sharing the truth. And, you know, one thing we talked about on that, on that previous episode was that the dissenting voice can often get media coverage. That when it's a 5-5 vote and there's no debate and there's no discussion and there are no public comments, the, the media just doesn't have anything to cover. And so, you know, the voice of OC said, you know, the Orange County Board of Education is trying to ban communism being taught. And, and they wrote a good article, but there's not a lot more to say when there's not a dissenting voice, when there's not people at public comments. First of all, just sharing the truth that it's already against California Ed Code by law to indoctrinate students in communism. Not that anyone is trying to do that. Um, but it's a completely unnecessary and wholly, you know, just for show. And that's what we're seeing a lot out of that board and a lot out of Placentia or Belinda board um, is this for show. And so um, if this ends up being how the races go with Carrie Buck holding on to her lead and Karen Freeman losing, um, then it becomes a 4-1 vote. Um, and maybe Anderson starts to sway as she sees the extremism, but it's definitely um, not good that we've already seen s- such exodus at Placentia or Belinda School District. Um, and, and just it's not good for the students. That's not what the board should be doing. It's not what superintendents should be worried about. It's not what staff should be worried about. Um, you know, what is the next boogeyman that's going to be, um, uh, you know, demonized at uh, the board? So I feel like this is a good place to stop. (laughs) We've been talking for so long. Um, Just, you know, super briefly to give people an update on the um, propositions. I'll just run through them. Uh, Reproductive rights passed by a huge margin. Both of the gambling failed by a huge margin. I'm sure that'll be back in 2024. There's too much money at stake. But um, I'll, I'll link to the maps where you can see, but the entire state voted against 26 and 27. Um, big numbers, 61% voted for uh, funding for the arts in school. Uh, kidney dialysis for the third time uh, was defeated uh, now by 70%. So each time that it's the third time it's on the ballot and each time that number goes up by a little bit. So I think the entire state is telling the, the dialysis union, uh, we don't want to vote on this ever again. Um, Prop 30, uh, uh, really credit to Gavin Newsom's campaign against this. It was polling at 55 uh, percent support and only 41 percent actually voted for it. So 60 percent uh, of the voters rejected Prop 30 for all of those reasons, partially just because it was not a well-written uh, initiative. And then the referendum, whether or not to uh, ban uh, flavored tobacco products passed by a pretty big margin, 62 percent. Uh, and of course, R.J. Reynolds immediately the next day said they were filing a lawsuit uh, that it's illegal for the state of California to ban flavored tobacco products. So that's going to go to court and Attorney General Rob Bonto will represent us there. So that's the election. That's the election. Thank you so much for sharing your extensive yeah. knowledge and just explaining all of this and also teaching me so much these past few weeks. Well, it's fun to talk about it. It's, uh, you know, as as I said, when you suggested this format, um, it's so much more fun to have a conversation um, than, than to just speak into the air. So 
Um, I love spending this time with you and talking politics and it won't be the last. So I think we already referenced a couple more podcasts we want to do in the future. Uh, and, and I think we can really do that. And um, so thanks. And we'll do updates as we get them. So as always, thanks for listening. I couldn't do this podcast without you. A special shout out to my favorite listener, my mom, Peggy Jenkins, who listens to this podcast, even though she lives in Turlock, California and doesn't get to vote for 90, 95% of the people I talk to. Um, my executive producer, Ann Watka, who spent years talking me into this. Uh, a huge thanks to the producing team who makes this possible, Jackson Henry and Tisa Valiola. Um, if you haven't listened to Observing Fullerton, you know what to do next. Subscribe and listen to all their past episodes. As part of the Fullerton Observer, uh, the podcast team, Arujan Veed, Arian Meza, Bianca Bravo, and our own Jackson Henry, keep you informed about the, Calf- uh, the Fullerton community with their podcast. So give them a listen. They've got a great show. Thanks.